0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN has a brand new look, but we're sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of Food Radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palacio on this journey through culinary history. And today I'm talking about one of my favorite topics, and that's olive oil. Now, we know archaeologist studies, and uh, writings of historians that olive oil has been around since 600 BC, at least. But It really remained uh, until maybe the mid-20th century that it became a worldwide used, known, and desired product. So today, we're going to find out more about that and why. Because my guest is Carl Ibsen, who wrote the monograph From Cloth Oil to Extra Virgin Oil, Italian Oil Before the Invention of the Mediterranean Diet. And I came across this paper because um, at the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery just this past week, uh, the Sophie Coe Prize Award was announced. And Sophie Coe Prize is a long-running and generous prize for writing and food history in the English language, given once a year for an essay or article of up to 10,000 words, on any aspect of the history of food. And the winner was announced at the Oxford Symposium. And who should that winner be but my guest today? And that's how I ran across this Carl Ibsen. Carl, and Carl gave a, a, a wonderful um, thank you announcement video uh, for this earth shaking news, which in fact the earth did shake. And there was, he experienced a little bit of wherever he is out there in California, he experienced a little earthquake. And that was rather exciting for the whole thing. Um, Carl is an historian of modern Italy at Indiana University. He's been a member of the faculty there since 1994. And he's also the founder and director of the IU Food Institute, which promotes faculty and graduate research in food studies. And now it offers a certificate in food studies for undergraduates. As one gathers from his publications, Carl has spent a good amount of time in Italy. His recent writings include Fumo, Italy's love affair with the cigarette, which I can't wait to read, I have to say, and Italy in the Age of Pinocchio, Children and Danger in the Liberal Era. Welcome, Carl.
2: Thanks very much. Nice to be here.
1: It's... um, it was exciting to hear your acceptance um, of this award and, and prestigious award, and congratulations to you on that. With the with the earthquake in the background, I, I have to say that made it very exciting.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that was carefully planned. Of course, you know uh-huh. I'm a, a native, native Californian, so I, I know ahead of time when these things are going to happen.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I gathered that you were a native Californian. All your undergraduate, graduate, and your and your PhD studies were all done at Berkeley, correct?
2: Yes, and also
1: uh, from kindergarten through high school. <laughs> okay, you didn't go far afield until all of a sudden you ended up in Italy for so much time. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Well, and that was my question with all these other studies because you you have you know the history of modern Italy obviously being you know your your major topic, but you have done you got another master's in in um, demography and. We say demography, or do we say demography? We say demography, say I think. Is, demography. Is good. That's I say demography. So, um, I mean, so you you're pretty much writing uh, a variety of pieces. What uh, what attracted you to writing about olive oil? Well,
2: it started um, a few years ago with the with the idea for the food institute. I mean, I, I had, as you you mentioned, some of my publications. Um, And there's an earlier one still on population studies and population policy Mm -hmm. in Italy. Um, So I've always been an Italian historian. I haven't always been involved in food studies. Um, But I've been all my life involved in sort of the food world, if you will. I worked in restaurants in the Bay Area and have contacts there. And with producers, including a dear friend who's, in fact, an olive oil producer in California. Um, And a few years ago, and here, well, I guess I'll start name dropping. Um, I was at the American Academy on a visit. I'm a fellow there. I, I spent a, a fellowship year there a couple of decades ago. Um, and I was chatting with, of all people, Alice Waters um, about food studies initiatives. And um, we got around to the topic of, of, uh, of creating um, a food institute. And I thought, well, I could do something like that uh, at IU. <laughs> so when I came back from that trip, uh, which was also a research trip, I, um, I um, familiarized myself with the existing food studies scholars on campus um, and got involved in that area. First, As just to say as an activist would be an exaggeration, but I was interesting, interested in interacting with undergraduates and raising awareness about, about issues related to food and environment and, uh, and, uh, and so on, sustainability, equity, mm-hmm. and these sorts of things. And so um, I did that. Um and then came to the conclusion that, well, if I'm gonna be in this world, I better find a I better find a topic, a research topic in, <laughs> as well. Um uh, and so I'd finished up the book on smoking, uh, which was great fun. And um I was looking around at various possibilities. I looked uh I read through a series of uh women's magazines from the early twenty early 20th century, Italian women's magazines, which obviously focus a lot on cuisine. Um, I thought about looking at military diet as a sort of index of sort of national ideas of what uh, diet might be. Uh, But it came around to olive oil. um, And that was, you know, more more intriguing still. And as I mentioned, I had some connections already in that world. And Mm -hmm. so began began the research um, on this topic, which has has been great. It's um, it's pushed me a little bit. It's taken me out of my sort of comfort zone, which is Italy after unification in 1860. And I've actually, as you know, gone back to the 18th century. Right. Um, and I'm starting to look at other parts of the world because the, it's a global story. Uh, Italy is in some sense at the center of it, especially the hist- the, the, historically. Um, but I've got to take into account Spanish production and consumption, obviously, in, in many other, um, in many other uh, places as well. And I've also been looking at the... Um, at the contemporary world, I've spent a fair amount of time now in Puglia, the heel of the the boot. It's an area that's that I focus on in the uh, in the articles you which read,
1: which is food wise, is really hot right now too. Right, right, um,
2: and I've, I published another article uh, last year, I guess, in Gastronomica on the current uh, situation, the really tragic uh, olive oil situation. Mm-hmm. In Puglia, because of the, the Zilela blight that has destroyed uh, the groves in the in the southern mm. part of the peninsula, so that's a long answer to your question.
1: So yeah, no, that, that's that's great. I mean, and it just throws us, you know, headlong into the into the whole topic of of olive oil too, in this background. I, I mean, to back up, go even further than the you know the seventeenth eighteenth centuries. Um, you talk you you begin, uh, this paper, which is a wonderful paper. And unfortunately I've only had a chance to read through it once. And I, <laughs> I plan to revisit that again. Um, and it kind of put everything in perspective for me as far as, uh, this almost recent history of olive oil, in, in, very recent in terms of, you know, so much of our, of what we consider standard product, Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the concept of food mobilities. And well, let's back up and talk a little bit about the background and and the original, the origins of olive oil. Um, That being, you know, the Middle East and and Mediterranean region.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Can you just bring us back there a little bit and then we can Sure. You know, sure. Fast forward.
2: I'll, I'll I'll comment a little on the, the food mobilities angle. The, yes. the paper is yes. going to appear in a a volume published by University of Toronto Press called Food Mobilities. It's edited by Simone Cinotto oh. and Dan Bender. Um mm-hmm. and so there too I was, you know, um it, it wasn't necessarily my idea to to uh to choose that sort of theoretical angle, but it's a, it's a fruitful one and really interesting that also was new to me in the way that this has been a eye-opening project <clears throat> um so we yeah we know that that the oleraster plant uh, originated somewhere in probably in the middle east and was um selected by early agriculturalists um probably going back thousands of years before the common era um to produce you know the um European, what became called the European olive, olive, and so uh, an oil-producing plant, and that spread throughout uh, throughout the Mediterranean, and different cultivars were selected. Um, You know, I'm not. uh, I've been learning a lot about agriculture in recent years, (laughs) and I'm would be embarrassed to say that it was only a, a couple of years ago that a farmer pointed out to me that apples aren't grown from apple seeds. Apple trees aren't grown from apple seeds, but from <laughs> cuttings from from apples that have the characteristics that one wants, and that's the same with olives. So this yeah. selection process went on for thousands of years, and so we get this amazing um, variety of cultivars throughout the Mediterranean, which is, of course the homeland of um, of the olive. And then we get into sort of recorded history and 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 learn something about um, oil production in. in, in Greek times and more, most of what I've read, and this is not obviously the focus of my research, but just feeling the need to stay up on it, um, also because I'm going to be teaching a course on the history of olive oil fairly soon. Um, you know, the Roman world was a huge consumer, uh, and Rome was a huge consumer um, of olive oil. And there, too, the mobility aspect is, is really fascinating because while olives grow beautifully in Italy, and of course, uh, do to this day, The Romans themselves got most of their oil from elsewhere, Mm -hmm. uh, from Spain, from Tunisia, and from Libya. Um, And that's that's also a really fascinating history. We probably know more about um, oil production in in those places than we do about oil production in Italy uh, in the Roman period. Although I have read some interesting archaeological pieces based on aerial photographs taken after World War I that, that do show... Evidence of where the groves uh, existed in Puglia, in northern Puglia, actually in Foggia, is where they they found this evidence um, back in that that era. But there's not much uh, documentary evidence about um, oil production in Puglia, for example, in the in the Roman times. Um, mm-hmm. That, as I say, becomes really important, I think, in the 18th century, which is why I start
1: then. Right, uh, and that's, and I find that. Um, even though, yes, there were, you know, there was some private production here, spotty here and there and in, you know, in special uh, properties with the, you know, the owner having a few trees. And and I'm talking about going up to Tuscany, there's evidence of some of their vineyards having been around for, oh, say, uh, know, say, 13, 15 generations would take us back a ways. But mm-hmm. yeah, but not but nothing as far as the um, you know the major production scale. But then again, the as you point out, uh, the oil was not that was produced was not really for consumption. Correct? The the majority of oil um, produced
2: uh, through the nineteenth century and into the beginning of the twentieth century, yeah, was not food oil. It was used for for soap production for lighting um and for uh, from my point of view perhaps most interesting uh, wool production for lubricating okay. the uh the um the yarn <coughs> in wool hence, production hence your title the cloth oil right <laughs> right yeah it was referred to in 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 britain in particular as cloth oil mm-hmm. um and and interestingly the most um the most important source for that cloth oil was, was in fact, um, southern Italy, to the point that it's referred to in, in British um, sources, sources that I've been consulting since I wrote the article that you read, as Gallipoli oil. In fact, Gallipoli oil mm. is a, really just another name for olive oil, whether or not it comes from Gallipoli, which is not the Gallipoli in Turkey, but the, the, the small port in, in Puglia on the Ionian Sea from mm. whence uh, most um, of that oil was exported.
1: Interesting. Um, yeah, I had always assumed that wool had so much lanolin in it, natural lanolin that you know, extra oil was not necessary. But it, you know, now it makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, apparently
2: in this, in the scouring process, I guess. I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert on this. I've, I've yeah. talked to some people who work with wool and, and read a little bit, but I gather that in the scouring process to get rid of the the dirt and the smell, it they lose it. It loses its natural uh, fat. Um, which is not an issue, I think, for some artisanal producers, but for the industrial production, it was. All right,
1: all right. Um, well, so you really do talk a lot about the production or the growth of, growth of the olives and the groves and focused on where they grew and referring to the Kingdom of Naples. Can you describe that for us, please?
2: Sure. The, the Kingdom of Naples was um the kingdom that uh existed in southern italy for how long i don't know thousand years Uh, it was a uh, um a well-established um political entity in europe for from all of early modern and uh, and into the uh late modern modern period Um, and it consists of the italian peninsula south of rome basically naples was the capital palermo uh, in Sicily was the sort of second capital. And Sicily was part of the the kingdom, um, and that was the major uh, producer of of oil in the world in the in the in eighteenth century. And this changes when Spanish production increases in the nineteenth. Um, mm. And indeed, to this day, um, the southern regions—and this is surprises some people, including some Tuscan friends of mine—the um, <laughs> southern regions produce the vast majority of Italian oil. Calabria, Sicily, and Puglia account for something like seventy-five to eighty percent of Italian oil.
1: Yeah, that was. I mean, I I knew that it was very, um, you know, very high in the production scale, but I didn't realize it. It produced that large of a percentage of the Italian
0: oil. Yeah, I think that the
2: Tuscan percentage these days is around six or seven percent, and yet that, Mm -hmm. of course, is the oil that's best known. Yeah, which is an interesting story in and of itself.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, now we're talking, as you say, the Kingdom of Naples, uh, you referred to um, your original studies as being, you know, post-unification of Italy. So this is all pre, you know, pre-unification. This is all
2: pre-unification, right. Yeah. The, the Kingdom of Naples, which after the Napoleonic period uh, becomes the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, um, ceases to exist uh, after 1860 with the unification, mm. um, something that the historians have long seen as sort of progress. Um, one British politician referred to the kingdom of the two Sicilies as the negation of God um, at the time. Um, but there's been a lot of revisionist work since, and there are those who think that uh, that the South got a raw deal in unification. And, and, and some are now looking back nostalgically at that kingdom, which had a lot going for it, fr- frankly. Uh, it, it had a really vibrant economy, which involved not just oil, but silk and wool and wheat and citrus. Um, that uh, that was compromised by unification, we might say.
1: Right. Um, it's uh, kind of kind of puzzling too at that time to see where we are today. But which was more important to them, fuel or food, as far as this oil was concerned?
2: Yeah, that's that's a question I haven't been able to uh, to sort out. I think probably about equally. Um, there was a huge administration set up to me to be sure that the capital city Naples was supplied uh, with oil um, as, as I mentioned for fear that if there should be a shortage or if the price should be too high, there might be a popular insurrection that 's how important mm-hmm. oil was mm-hmm. um, and there are references to its use as food and to its use for lighting and I think that um, that for the the people if you will. Um, for the vast majority of the population, you know, they were they were using it for, for both, and they were using the same oil, the same quality oil, for eating and for um, for lighting, which by modern standards was not particularly good.
1: No, no. <laughs> high, high
2: high acidity and so on.
1: So so then, why was the eighteenth century so important? What 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 occurred that made the eighteenth well, century? What happened so in important the eighteenth
2: century is is the industrial revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. and a huge increase in demand for that, uh, that industrial oil, the Gallipoli oil that the, the uh, Brits needed to for their wool manufacture, which was, of course, the first step in, um, in that phase of economic development. And that continues throughout the 19th century. Now, eventually, um, and it's interesting, I've been reading some of these earlier, again, since the article, um, British parliamentary papers, and investigations and talking with wool manufacturers and why you know, Gallipoli oil is better than anything else. And it is. They have rapeseed oil, but they don't use that for, for low-quality wool. For the high-quality wool, they insist on olive oil. They've tried mm-hmm. to use uh, whale oil. But that is a problem because if they leave it to sit overnight, it um, combusts uh, spontaneously, and they've had factories Ooh. burn down because they've tried to use whale oil. So into the into the nineteenth century, it's a really important product, and the demand is high, and the price correspondingly higher than for other oils. Um, the part that I maybe haven't completely sorted out yet is um, when they de- how they developed seed oils, uh, which they do that. Um, that come to be a better product than olive oil and come to replace olive oil in the, um, in the production process. Now, seed oils are industrially uh, manufactured and a lot cheaper. So eventually they take over. And in the, in the 20th century, we see the transition from you know, the dominance of industrial oil to, to most olive oil becoming comestible oil or food oil, and so new requirements or needs with regard to quality. Yeah. I mean,
1: it, so from the 18th century... On into probably the early or the turn of the twentieth century, I mean that was this kingdom of Naples. This is their most important item of foreign trade, as you point out. I mean this was this was huge. Right, certainly
2: in the eighteenth and the early nineteenth century, citrus uh, in the nineteenth century becomes more important.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so by the end of the uh, by the end of the century, uh, citrus is a is a more important product. Um, which, interestingly, is the first apparently the first area infiltrated by the mafia following unification in Sicily. Yeah, <laughs> but
1: that's another story. We'll get we'll get to that when we start talking about fraud and, <laughs> and right. adulteration of oil. And, um, I did we did I did a couple shows on that, and Nancy Harmon Jenkins um, has been on a couple times, both with her Mediterranean diet and and the oil industry, and. Um, it, it, well, these these are problems that go on still to this day. But, they do. Um, it, when did the well? We talked well we initially, you know, started out with the, the um, uh, theory of food mobilities, and of course, because these trees couldn't exist elsewhere, except they do exist in California. So you're no stranger to <laughs> olive to exactly. trees there. But mm-hmm. um, because it originated in the you know the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and couldn't really thrive anywhere else. When did the north begin to request some of the, the some of the comestible oil, the you know, the the noble extract as they would as I referred to it. Right, when, right. That, when did that occur?
2: Well, I found references from the late 18th century um, by Italian producers saying that that some uh, of the English are starting to use it as as food. Uh, I haven't s- found any evidence of that yet in British sources. Uh, I did find a British source which said they thought, like some Belgians, maybe ate, used it for food. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> um, this, is, this in the this in the nineteenth century. Yeah, and not even the north of Italy. I mean, mm. sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, as, uh, as I point out, you know, prior to to nineteen sixty or so, and that's when this this article ends. I'm obviously going to continue working on the period afterwards. It's it's fascinating. Um, <clears> Olive <throat> it oil was not consume much in northern Italy, in places like Milan, except by southern southern immigrants um, who were, you know, after World War II started moving to places like Turin and Milan for work, um, and so brought their foodways with them. Similarly, mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned the California trees. You know, olive oil is a, a Mediterranean product, and obviously not just Italy, but throughout the Middle East and North Africa and uh, Spain and southern France and so on, but it's with the, the Mediterranean diaspora, we might say, of which the Italian was the largest component, that um, demand for olive oil spreads to places like the United States and Argentina and Australia, South Africa, and so on, and indeed some um, (laughs) of those Migrants, primarily Italians, but not only, uh, start to uh, cultivate olives in places like California. So there are, some, there are some, you know, how you've seen the ancient gnarled trees in, in Puglia that we don't see anywhere else in the world that, that uh, the locals claim are 1,000 years old. They're almost certainly at least 500 years old. Um, mm-hmm. We don't see those in California, but I have seen some trees that probably are 100 years old. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and those initially mostly were for, for table olives. Um, and there's some interesting studies uh, from agro- agronomists in uh, in California on that. Um, and then in the recent decades, we see the growth of the uh, really high quality olive oils being produced in California, but also in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and so on.
1: Right. Right. And as you say, you just sort of you look at the Italian diaspora and you follow the, you follow the growth of the olive trees, olive oils. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. California in itself, it would be an interesting study, I think, as far as the, you know, the history of the olive oil industry there. Um, but the, back to Italy, of course, <laughs> See, I think you say olive oil to somebody and most people probably respond with Italian olive oil. Italy, you know, olive oil, Italy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas you said so much of the oil originally came from, for the Italians themselves, you know, from Spain, Libya, um, uh, Greece, even in you know, other places. Um, it's it's interesting that they and then the industrial revolution uh, comes along and uh, ups ups the game a bit. Um, but there were problems, problems with uh, the The purity of the oil when after the industrial revolution, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're going to talk. I want to talk a little bit more about that and get into the more modern era. But we're going to take a just a brief sponsor break here, and we'll be right back with more. So stay tuned. Did you know that Heritage Radio Network or HRN and all its 40 different podcasts, including my show, A Taste of the Past? Run on listener support. That's right. It's been 11 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it that far thanks to listeners like you who support our efforts to bring you the best in food podcasts. Your contributions have kept us on the airwaves all these years, even during the pandemic. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I want to share some exciting news with you. HRN has a new look, a new brand identity, and a new website. The new site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through the archive of over 16,000 episodes. You can count on us to bring you new content each week, and we hope that we can count on you to keep it going by becoming a member of HRN. Why not set up a monthly recurring donation of any amount, $1, $5, or $10, on up, and choose a favorite show, like A Taste of the Past, in the designation drop-down menu. Become a monthly sustaining member today at HeritageRadioNetwork.org/donate. We are back, and um, Carl, I, I wanted to kind of fast forward into the in, you know post-industrial revolution and what was happening with olive oil.
2: Right, right. Well, let me, let me follow up on some of your, your comments before the break and give you my, sure. my sort of current take on this situation. So, we, we had a, a world of olive oil, and again, looking at southern Italy in the 18th century, where maybe 1% of the oil was good quality food oil, um, and maybe 20% was food oil at all. And then, in, with the decline of demand in the late 19th century and early 20th century for industrial oil, whether for lighting or wool, or well, it's still used for soap. Um, you know, here is all this oil, and what do we what do we do with it? Uh, I think is the conundrum that faced the producers, um, and they could increase the percentage of good oil, but but not that much because the technology was slow. I mean, you know that, uh, but perhaps it's worth mentioning that the oil the olives are carried from the trees, carried from the groves, to the mill where they're crushed. Uh, which could take uh, an hour or more per batch. And then the, the crushed olives are transferred to uh, rush discs, which are stacked and pressed, and that takes hours and hours. And the first oil that comes out is good, and the next oil that comes out is less good, and then they press it some more and add hot water, and you get the porous quality oil. And then as far as the um, olives to start with, the best quality oil, and today the really only acceptable way to make oil, is by picking the olives freshly off the trees at the right moment, usually in the fall, October, November. Historically, olives were gathered off the ground; they waited for them to fall off the trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were. They, today, uh, extra virgin olive oil needs to be pressed within twenty-four hours of that picking. Historically, the olives might sit in vats for days, weeks, or even months before they get pressed. You know, that's the 80% or 90% of oil that was produced that really was not, uh, that, that was good for industrial purposes, but was not um, really very good to eat. Although probably the poor in Southern Italy ate some, consumed some very low quality oil. Mm-hmm. So what to do with all of that oil that for which there's no longer much demand? Well, you know, they, as I say, they started to uh, speed up the technology and improve the technology with mechanization and, and steam power and, uh, and so on. Um, but they also developed other um, methods, in particular uh, <clears throat> purification or uh, refining of the oil, which was a chemical process which could bring down the acidity and make it, uh, which is the main issue, is the high acidity of these oils, and make it comestible. So they started to sell that as food oil, uh, usually blended with a percentage of you know, better quality oil, say 10%. Uh, oleofino, or what would become to be called virgin oil, with the, um, with the refined oil, which seems like a reasonable strategy, and given the technology of the day, um, was. But of course, there was a lot of confusion on the part of the consumers, and and a failure to distinguish between you know high quality oils and these other blended oils, and olive oil was also blended with cottonseed oil and other seed oils, uh, and sold often as. As if it were pure olive oil, although of course it wasn't. So the seeds of that fraud, which issue, which if, as you mentioned, continues to this day, are are planted in the nineteenth century, um, part out of necessity. I mean, you know, that was the only way to make the to, to manage that quantity of oil with the technology that they had. Mm-hmm. The wonderful thing about the modern era, and you know, anyone who's nostalgic about those old presses, well. They're a small minority. <laughs> uh, the, the oil they produced was not, was not, most of it was not very good. Since the 1960s, they've developed technologies that can uh, process much larger quantities of oil much faster with lower levels of oxidation. And, and oxygen is, of course, one of the biggest um, threats to the quality of olive oil. And so we can produce much larger quantities of good oil, of, of what now we call extra virgin oil since 1960. Nonetheless, uh, of course, the issues of blending and refining uh, and, and mislabeling uh, continue. While I was um, in Puglia interviewing for the piece I wrote about Zilela, um, there was yet another scandal. They found a, a place that for 20 years had been selling seed oil treated with chlorophyll um, as uh, extra virgin olive oil, you know, uh, shipping it out of, of uh, northern Puglia to Germany and, and, and getting away with it.
1: Uh, It's, I mean, it's, look, it's, it's um, supply and demand and, and, you know, profit at the end that is going to lead, you know, lead the industry to all kinds of problems. But it, um, if anyone has ever been to a a mill where, you know, olives are being pressed, the first pressing is, and tasted that oil, it's just, it's, it's a taste that, well, they say, you taste that once and you'll never go back, you know, to, to anything else it's really quite remarkable. And a lot of people, yeah, yeah. and I have, I have several friends who have small I and mean, small properties, but they gather their olives very carefully, you know, from the trees, as you said, and not letting them dro- wait till they drop to the ground. And, but the problem for them is, you know, it's just a small amount, but they want to have them pressed into oil. And then they have to take them to the community uh, mill. And it's just, Sometimes then they'll sit there for another week in line with it because they have to wait for their turn for their olives to be pressed. And then their olives might be thrown in with, you know, some neighboring olives somewhere. And so they're really not getting you know, the, the quality that they want. And that's, it's a problem. So the, um, the industry has tried to sort that out as you... As you say, they've sped things up and, and made it better. Small mm-hmm. producers still have those problems, though, very small
2: producers. Sure, they do, and, and the so-called you know, hobby producers who, who right. just grow their own olives and have to use a, a, a local mill. You know, sort of the luck of the draw, as you, as you point out, for getting it, getting it pressed quickly. Obviously, the people who are, are, are most concerned with producing a high-quality and so more expensive oil have their own mills and control every phase of the, uh, of the procedure. Um you know there's a you mentioned um uh, the issue of, of Spanish oil um in Italy and, and the food mobility I, I'd like to go back to that to that for just a second because sure. one of the other um oddities if you will of this history is that Italy again in the 19th century becomes a major importer of oil which it continues to be to this day uh, most of it Spanish oil because again the Spanish production has now eclipsed Italian by a factor of 2 3 or 4 um whereas you know 150 years ago, Italy was producing more oil than Spain. But um, you know, one problem with, with uh, olive production is that the, the tree is alternate bearing. It would like to produce a crop just every two years. Now, if you prune it properly and, and uh, irrigate and perhaps fertilize, you can get a, a crop every year. But it varies dramatically. Um, and so if you look at olive oil statistics, you'll see that the production uh, varies a lot from year to year. So there's some years that Italy maybe needed to import oil just for domestic consumption. But in fact, what's happening to a lot of that oil is it's being um, re-bottled as Italian oil. Uh, now, the labeling laws today are strict in Europe, but an Italian name is an Italian name. And even if, if you look in the fine print, you see that the oil in the bottle comes from Spain, Tunisia, um, and, um, and Greece, as well as Italy. But, but most people probably don't read that label. Um, so you've got this industry of importing lots of oil into Italy, some of which, of course, gets refined, and here we get into issues of, of uh, fraudulent labeling. But others is, you know, it's a, you get, buy extra virgin olive oil from from Spain and put it in Italian bottles and export it to the United States, and um, you know that satisfies a certain uh, consumer demand. It's a little bit perverse, but that's uh, why Italy is today the biggest importer of oil in the world.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's an interesting, um, you know, route to follow and where, you know, where Mm -hmm. all the oil comes from. And yes, and I was aware of much of that, but it's interesting that the oil industry, as opposed to, let's say the wine industry and some uh, cheeses and other things that there's no DOC designation. They have other laws and designations, but you know, because of this, I would imagine, because they have to get their olives from elsewhere and the oil from elsewhere, that there's no. You know, um, well, there there is now. Um, the D.O.C. The there's for, a designation. For oil.
2: Um, there have been uh, there's a lot of, uh, and I, I don't have the number at hand. But I, I have looked at this. Um, there are many small areas. Puglia, for example, has five different designations, geographic designations. Um, More recent, and they haven't for Puglia. They haven't done. They haven't added much value, so the growers are not very impressed with that. More recently, (laughs) they've added, and I need to go back and check the initials. And I'm always confused because sometimes I've got them in English and sometimes I've got them in Italian. But the um, there is now. I think it's the Dop. Um, No, the Dop is the one I was just describing. There's another appellation which you now they now have for Tuscany. There's an uh, Tuscan oil label, there's a Puglian oil label, there's a, there's a Sicilian oil label, which covers the whole um, region. Uh, and those um, are a little less rigid in terms of the requirements, um, and those maybe are going to uh, be commercially more interesting. And one of the problems with the, the DOP in Puglia was that I met one grower who had his you know, groves in one DOP and his mill in another, so he couldn't use either. Um some, some of these sorts of, of problems. But yeah. the new uh, labeling, if they do it well, and I think there's reason to believe that they will, the Olio di Puglia and the Olio di Sicilia and the Olio di Soscana, um, those are, are labels, you know, those are names that people will, will recognize. Um, you know, Tere di Bari, less so. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, when, so when exactly did the... Um, classification of extra virgin or, or virgin olive oil, the extra virgin
2: olive oil? Okay. Well, the, the virgin terms starts to have legal uh, significance in the 1930s. That's the oil classification, but extra mm-hmm. virgin is the 1960 law. And that's the law that everyone looks back to today as, as making a, a real difference. Uh, that was the first law that specified that extra virgin oil would be only made by mechanical processes, so no chemicals, no industrial production, um, that the uh, you know, olives would be milled within 24 hours of harvesting, that the acidity would, I think the initial level was 1.2%, but now it's down to 1% or even below that uh, maximum. Yes. And of course, yeah. the best oils are, are well below that. Um, that's, that was sort of the beginning of the modern era of olive oil. Um, <laughs> and that's where we get this strange term <laughs> of extra virgin that I explore a little bit in the um, uh, in the piece, um, and since then it it was a propitious moment because that's when the new uh, technologies came on online, so it became possible to produce. The estimate that I encountered was that in 1960 about 20 percent of the oil produced in Italy was virgin, not extra virgin, so higher levels of acidity. And the extra virgin was less than that, uh, so you know maybe five percent. Now, if you look at the supermarket shelf today, it looks like 100% of oil is extra virgin now. That's also a problem, I think.
1: Yeah, labeling is a problem. But certainly the the amounts
2: of of good quality oil that are made today are far higher than they were uh, 70 years ago. Mm. Uh, Or 60 years ago. That's when Let's say 60 years ago when the law was passed.
1: Well, I mean, it's amazing that, that there are so many bottles on the shelves today. I mean, I can remember a time when there were the selection was, you know, quite limited. Um,
2: mm-hmm,
1: and mm-hmm. when I was a kid, especially, I remember there was this one teeny tiny little bottle. of, I think It was Pompeyes, called Pompeian right. oil or something, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a little tiny bottle. And uh, now look at our shelves, you know, just loaded. But then comes the problem with how do you choose and how can you trust which labels and, you know, and what are you getting? Um, I mean, the legislation, you know, fortunately for you know for some of the the uh, protection laws that they instituted we can be somewhat assured that that we're getting at least not chemically produced oil and and just mechanical mechanically, uh, and mechanically ground yeah yeah i restricted. went to a food
2: show in florence it's been a few years now uh that had a segment section on uh, on olive oil and one one expert got up there and um and said a number of of interesting things. This is an Italian who we would think would be an advocate of Italian oil. And he said, you know, the the European laws are pretty good. You can can pretty much believe what's on the label. And as I say, if you look carefully now, it says where the olives come from um, and so on. And if they come from five different places, chances are the quality is not as good as one of those uh, DOP oils that comes from a specific region. Um, but again, the, the quality of the oil will vary in terms of because of the practices of the, the grower and of the, of the, of the miller and, and, and so on. But then he said, you know, outside of Europe, it's the Wild West. Uh, no one else has laws uh, like the European laws. And what you get in the U.S., for example, it's very hard to know what's, in, what's inside that bottle when you buy a, a Costco olive oil. Yeah, maybe it tastes good. but Maybe it is good. But it's it's hard to know quite exactly what's in there. I mean, you have to trust the producer, um, and in any case, that oil or a Trader Joe's oil or you know is going to be it's not going to be the highest quality oil. You can't get the at that price. Uh, you can't get the kind of oils, the really beautiful oils that are being made all over the world: California, Tuscany, Puglia, Spain. Uh, you know. But they're they're well, going to be yeah. smaller production. They're going to be a lot more expensive. There's just no you can't yes. make a, a good quality oil for for ten dollars a liter uh, or eight dollars yeah, a liter. Yeah, I mean,
1: and when you know when when they're rebottled in America, and you get these truckloads coming tankers mm-hmm. and it's rebottled in America. You you gotta know you gotta you have to suspect at least that it's not the purest quality. And you know the old edict that you know if you they, you get what you pay for. I mean, yes, it's going to cost you more. And and yet there, you know, food people and a good friend of mine once said, you know, forget this that you can't fry with olive oil, you can't do this with olive oil, you can do anything with olive oil. Use when you're cooking, just always use the best olive oil that you have for everything. I mean and Yeah, and, and that's
2: wonderful if you can, if you can afford
1: it. If you can, and that's just the problem, that it is and and then California oil, of course, because of the you know restrictions and the careful production. It's become even more expensive. Same with, well, sure. of course, with wines. You know, compared a you know, California wine to a, a European wine, I and mean, it's just it's interesting. But it's amazing, as I say, how recent the history is of the olive oil that we have on our table today. I mean, it, it is recent. It, it is. I mean,
2: and mm-hmm. again, not just here. I, one of the avenues I've been pursuing. Um, in the last couple of months is I've been looking at Artuzzi's classic uh, handbook of Italian cookery from the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And uh, he mentions oil, but almost never exclusively. Oil is almost always an alternative. You can use oil or you can use lard or you can use butter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's the state of middle-class uh, Italian eating at the turn of the 20th century. Oh, um, and it would be a bit different if he were a Southerner, he's not. Um, the, uh, the, you know, there's, there's the occasional dish, which, uh, insists on olive oil, for example, a couscous menu. Now the couscous he describes as a dish in Italy made by Jews, made by Italian Jews. So it's not surprising they don't use lard. Um, but, uh, but that's a, a sort of rare example, uh, that I've found so far in looking through his work. Um, oh, and cool. in those, uh, Italian women's magazines that I looked at as well. Preziosa and La Cucina Italiana, if you want to call that a woman's magazine. From the inner yeah, I, I, I don't and, know that
1: I would call that strictly a woman's magazine. But Preziosa yeah, <laughs> La
2: is. And another okay. one I looked yeah, at, the, yeah. the name of which is escaping me. But even there, you know, there's, there's a heavy use of lard and, and butter, of animal fats, as opposed to olive oil. I mean, olive oil is there, but it isn't the, the prized fat that it is today. Today, any Italian cookbook that you buy, certainly in English, is going to be using olive oil in almost for almost everything, mm. Um, mm. and it's you know for, for all sorts of reasons. But that transition, yeah, has taken place in this the 60-year period since that that uh, the legislation, not not just because of it, but it just happened to coincide with this, mm. this modern era I would call uh, of olive oil and its, it's conquest of <clears throat> of countries around the world. I mentioned in the piece Elizabeth David in 1954 couldn't find olive oil easily in England. Right. today, every every celebrity chef in England is using
1: olive oil. It's a new world in terms of cooking. I mean, it's a smaller world because we can get we don't share. basically we we share the same cooking ingredients. We have access to many of the same cooking ingredients. and mm-hmm, And mm-hmm. I kind of think that that shrinks our you know our, uh, our experiences a bit. And
2: yeah, the advantages and disadvantages of, of globalization and of, of those food mobilities. Because, yeah, you can get right. olive oil everywhere now. And, you know, they're producing olive oil in Japan and China and places you would never have imagined.
1: Right, right. It was, it's just a, been an, an exciting uh, travel of, of a product to read about and, uh, and to read your writing, especially with the research you've done. And I look forward to post 1960. If you promise that you're going to continue writing more, <laughs> I look forward to. Yeah, that's more that's ahead. my
0: plan.
2: I'm I'm embarking on a, a sabbatical year during which I'll I'll spend a good chunk in Italy and during which I hope to to fill out the narrative, um and uh, and come up with a with a with a book uh, at the end of this period that takes us yes into this uh, latter period and, and explore some other dimensions from the earlier periods as well.
1: Well, eat a lot of good food with olive Thank oil, you. drink a lot of good wine, some noble extract and noble grapes, and you know, finish it off with some noble rotten and, and and I just I wish you the best. And again, congratulations on this prize because we need good writings in food history. And I also congratulate you on well, it's long overdue because I didn't know about it, but you know, establishing the Food Institute at, at the university as well. I think that's...
2: Thanks. Thanks very much. I have good. to say the, yeah. the co-award was, uh, you know obviously I applied for it. It seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And, and then I kind of forget <laughs> about it. And suddenly I get this right. uh, email that I had, had won it. That was a, a great surprise and a great honor.
1: It um, well, yeah, terrific. It gives me more
2: motivation to, to finish off the project.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. So thank you so much for sharing your information. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And remember that heritageradionetwork.org is a listener-supported network. So if you go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, or otherwise called HRN, um, be sure to hit donate or become a member. And if you enjoyed this podcast, Be sure to subscribe and you'll have all of them downloaded to your phone or wherever you get your podcast automatically. Okay. Thanks for listening. It's been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter